Hello, and welcome to episode 9 of CS After Hours. I'm Jeremy Brown, here with Scott Johnson, once again coming to you from Rochester, New York. You, If you are listening to this on Sunday that it's released, happy Easter to you if you celebrate it. And if not, well, happy week to you. We started our exploration of video consoles a couple of weeks ago, and it is taking longer than expected. The uh, memory that came flooding back when we started talking about this got a lot longer than we thought. So what we're going to do this week is a little different. We're doing a deep dive into what happened in the 90s with video game consoles, about how things came to be, not just the games that we remember. If any of these things, once again, remind you of anything, feel free to hit us up on social media, and we'd love to hear from you. But, as always, we're going to start with this week's news, which has been popular among a lot of sites. So, Scott, what's the news? So, it's funny that you mentioned social media. Our news this week is about YouTube, and YouTube is actually getting rid of viewers being able to see downvote numbers. So you can still downvote something, but those numbers won't be shown when you watch a video. So you'll only see the positives, but not the negatives. And content providers like myself um, still can see those numbers, but the general population cannot. This is quite different from what other social media platforms do. If you've been on Facebook, you can see that you can get bad um, little frowny face emojis and things of that nature, and you can actually see the people who gave them. But what YouTube is doing is basically hiding the negative. So someone could have 50,000 upvotes and 200,000 downvotes, and you won't see it. You'll only see the upvotes. So this is kind of a little different in the fact that you won't really see if people hate something. The content provider like myself can see that, but the people watching the video can't see that people really hated this. It's going to be a little different when we get into the political realm in the future because you'll see a bunch of people liking it, but no one disliking it. It's going to kind of skew things because you're going to see, oh, 100,000 people like this candidate, but there's 500,000 who hated this post. So it's going to be a little interesting in the future to see how this really plans out. Yeah, I it'll be interesting. I don't know if it's good or bad yet, but we'll yeah, find I out. haven't decided if it's good or bad. I mean, I post YouTube videos for um, my students, but I disable the ability for them to um, give up votes or down votes because that really doesn't matter to me. But I, it would be interesting to see with something more permanent, like your Mike the Cat video when you gave the tour of Mike the Cat. Yeah, I think I got three down votes for that. But <laughs> that would you got over what fifty thousand upvotes on that thing? Uh, views, not upvotes. But yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah. But the idea is the negative portion would be hidden now, and you would only see the positive version as a viewer. That's definitely going to be interesting. It, it definitely will. But uh, we're going to go back a couple years here, and we ended up talking with about the Sega. Uh, Genesis and Super NES last time. It's kind of where we ended. And if you recall, neither of these companies uh, were really uh, positioned to put the other one out of business, but it was a knockout, uh, drag out fight, and 
neither Nintendo nor Sega were winning. But Nintendo was working on creating the Nintendo 64, while Sega was developing the Saturn. And the Saturn was released in May 1995 in the United States and was launched ahead of the Nintendo 64. The Saturn was a 32-bit machine with a CD-ROM drive, and uh, it sold very well, and primarily with the Virtual Fighter game. And uh, it was successful, but it didn't stick around too long, and we'll get to why that is in a little bit. But it was the last of the 30, really the sole 32-bit machines um, that were uh, poised to get out ahead of Nintendo. That's a little not quite true, and we'll talk about that here in a little bit. But um, the... Downturn in the market in the 90s uh, was sort of perpetuated by uh, discrete video cards and PCs, and they were kind of the last great consoles. I never really owned a Saturn. Uh, I actually don't know anyone who did. Um, And I actually forgot about it until we started looking into this episode. Uh, I'm curious, did you ever own a Saturn? I never had a Saturn either. I don't really recall much about it. I know a few friends had one, but I don't ever remember really playing it. It doesn't really strike into my mind. I know it was one of the next gens after the Sega CD, but I really don't remember too much about it. And it really wasn't around for long that I remember. A lot of my friends were playing it and then all of a sudden stopped talking about it. (laughs) And there were a bunch of games for it, but that I remember a lot of my friends had like fighting games like Street Fighter and Virtua Fighter and things of that nature. But a lot of the games were more released in Japan than in the U.S. So the game market wasn't really that great for it here. So it really didn't take off that I recall. Yeah, I don't really recall it being super popular either. Uh, But what was popular was the Nintendo 64. And it was the same generation as the Saturn, uh, although it was released 18 months after the Saturn, at least in the U.S. And Sega had beat them to market, but it was at a cost. The N64 was a 64-bit console, although most of the games were 32-bit. And it was an extremely iconic console for a couple of reasons. One, the four controller ports on the front of the uh, the console, and it still had a cartridge port. And the controllers themselves were kind of a, um, some people call it an M-like design, although I think of it as a fork. Yeah, those controllers still weird me out today. I never know really how to hold them. So playing one game, you would hold the left furthest um, handle and use the D-pad. For another game, you may hold the center one with your left hand and use the um, stick. It was kind of weird. I don't remember many times where I had to use the stick and the D-pad at the same time, but there probably was. It was a really weird controller. It still is kind of weird today. I never really got used to using it. But it was different. It was the first one where they're really trying to combine things together. 
D-pads with thumbsticks. Yeah. And it's more like the modern controllers that you see now. <laughs> just not the, as comfortable. <laughs> just not as comfortable. They did make great advances on the new ones. But the new ones, if you look at several of them, they have a D-pad. They have two thumbsticks. They have buttons all over the place. To me, this was like the precursor to that. Nintendo's attempt to combine things that people really like together. Yeah, and despite its flaws or maybe you really like the uh, N64 controller, uh, what was really fascinating about the the system was that it really was a con- uh, cartridge-based system. And those cartridges had some amazing games on them. Uh, Super Mario uh, 64 was really pretty great. It was an isometric 3D graphics game. Yeah, that was one of the first games where they really were getting into the true 3D look. Yeah. The other ones were trying to simulate it, but I think the N64 really started getting into that, and that's what put them a little bit ahead of everyone else. Yep, and I believe there was Mario Kart, so there was people playing four-person Mario yeah, Kart. Yeah, that was amazing. The split screen, four split screens to play at the same time. You could get a group of friends together and just play, and you didn't have to do anything with networking them together or anything of that nature. Four people could play at the same time. Yeah, and uh, I, I never played it because I was so bad, but uh, the other extremely iconic N64 game, GoldenEye, and it was the return of Bond for so many reasons. It was the first Bond movie in almost a decade, and we had a game, and it was a 3D shooter, and it was just tons of fun. Yeah, the graphics back then, we thought they were amazing. This is so lifelike, you know. It was kind of a step up. I mean, they're nothing compared today. A lot of people complain today if the graphics are just a little shady. But back then, we thought this looked amazing. And it did look amazing for the games that we're used to playing. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think, I mean... Despite the amazing games, there were some limits uh, being a uh, console-based system, at least compared to the or cartridge-based system, compared to CDs. But they had their benefits. The cartridges were actually pretty fascinating of an idea to keep going at that rate. Everyone else was switching to CDs, and CDs did have issues. Cartridges kind of got rid of some of these limitations. You really couldn't run a game directly on a CD. So the actual console itself had to have more memory. The N64 only had to have four megabytes in RAM. Let me repeat that, four megabytes. We're not talking gigabytes and things of that nature like you might today. But they could use things directly from the cartridge. Unlike the CDs where you had to spin to the proper spot and read it, the access was a lot faster. And it also helped stop things like pirating. You could copy a CD game and give it to your friend. It wasn't as easy to do with a cartridge. You needed special equipment. You needed special um, circuits and things of that nature. You couldn't just rip it in your PC and give it to somebody else. So Nintendo did do a good thing by sticking with the cartridges because they didn't limit themselves to the machine capacity. Right. While the games were a lot smaller on the cartridges because they couldn't hold as much as a 750 meg CD, they did give you a lot of good content and fast content, direct access. Think of a solid state today versus a rotational drive. 
you don't have a lot of lookup time in a solid state compared to a rotational drive. It was basically the same idea. We're not talking lightning speeds faster, but it's still the same idea. Yeah, uh, certainly, I mean, the N64 was destined to be the last of the cartridge-based systems. I mean, those cartridges, while they were impressive in their own right, the fact that they could hold a tenth of the data of a CD certainly made them not practical for a lot of the uh, high-texture games. And uh, I do think Nintendo made the right choice at the time, uh, but it was going to be the last of their cartridge-based systems. And uh, interestingly, our next part of this is going to cover the uh, reason, I guess, that it was their last cartridge-based system. So I guess uh, what happened after the release of the Saturn, but before the release of the N64? So released just six months after the Saturn and a full year before the N64 was the PlayStation. If you are a modern gamer, you know that name. I mean, there's been several iterations of it since then. And it was what? 8,000 plus games have been released for it over the years. There was a lot. There was a ton of games for it. The story of the PlayStation doesn't start with its release in 1995, though. It starts many years before. You recall that Nintendo had released the Super NES with a cartridge in 1991, while Sega had released the Genesis with a CD-ROM drive. A generations of consoles later, and Nintendo was about to release another cartridge-based system, while Sega had released the Saturn with a CD-ROM drive. It turns out, while the Nintendo 64 cartridge was in hindsight a good thing, that wasn't the plan all along. No, it certainly wasn't. And in 1988, so we're going back even further, Sony actually had a partnership with Nintendo. Nintendo was looking to add CD-ROM support to the Super NES, and it makes sense they were competing with Sega at the time. Sony was already producing sound chips for the Nintendo, and it wasn't a stretch for them to make other components. Though, interestingly, a chief engineer at Sony was almost fired for working with Nintendo without permission from Sony executives, and it's funny because nowadays I think you'd be fired on the spot. But Sony began to work on their CD drive add-on to the NES, and they called it the PlayStation. Under this agreement, Sony was to get the rights to all CD titles on the SNES, and they would be able to make their own consoles that would play both CDs and the Nintendo cartridges. (laughs) Well, you can probably imagine Nintendo was not happy about this deal. And in 1991, at the Consumer Electronics Show, Nintendo was scheduled to announce their partnership with Sony. Instead, they got up on stage and surprised Sony and all of their executives by announcing that they were partnering with Philips. Philips being a chief competitor to Sony. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was just a huge screw you, basically, to Sony. I mean, imagine that you're all prepped for this show, 
And then all of a sudden, oh, by the way, we're not going with you anymore. Just stand off on the side and we will announce our real partner, which was such a crazy move by Nintendo. So they partnered with Philips, but nothing came of that for a while. Sony, on the other hand, is left holding a wet bag with really nothing to show for it. They were just stunned. They were expecting this huge deal to be announced. Of course, there was another major player in the market at this time, Sega. So Sony, upset with Nintendo, decided to approach Sega. And if you recall at the time, Sega and Nintendo were having a huge battle back and forth. It was a really difficult fight. So Sony goes, okay, let's go ahead and talk to Sega. And Sega promptly turned them down. In hindsight, that probably was a bad move by both Nintendo and Sega. Yeah. <laughs> if you look at the current video game market. But it was because Sega said, basically, that Sony didn't know how to make hardware, let alone how to make software. And we know from today that's really not true. So there's no partnership between them. So Sony is now stuck with no partnership with Nintendo, no partnership with Sega, and this potential system add-on sitting in their hands. So what do they do? Well, despite the events that happened in 1991 at the Consumer Electronics Show, um, Sony and Nintendo still continued to talk. When Nintendo slated to keep the majority of the rights to the new console, in 1992, however, the partnership, the 200 prototypes of the Nintendo PlayStation, and any goodwill between the companies vanished, and Sony began working on its own console. Right. And uh, it was kind of true at the time. Sony couldn't do software, and hardware was not their cup of tea. Uh, and the Sony executives thought that this PlayStation was a toy, and they wanted nothing to do with it. So what did they do? They restructured under Sony Music. And uh, shortly thereafter, Sony Computer Entertainment was born. And in 1994, Sony announced that it was going to enter the video game market. They didn't really know what direction to go, whether it was going to be 2D or 3D games. But after seeing some Sega prototypes, um, the Saturn prototypes, they decided to go both feet in with 3D graphics. And a year and a half of development later, it came to North America. In E3 of that year, Sega announced that the Saturn would be sold in North America for $399. Sony came on the stage immediately after, and the Sega executives didn't know what they were going to announce. What did they do? They announced the PlayStation for $299. $100 less than the Saturn. It had similar graphics, similar games, not the exact same games by and large. So the Saturn had uh, Virtual Fighter, the PlayStation had Tekken, and so on and so forth. There were some overlap games. But when the games were similar, the graphics were similar, which one would you get? The, the cheaper one. The cheaper console. <laughs> So I mean, $100 in the 90s was a lot of money. Right. I mean, it was 75% the price. And uh, and it's funny because nobody knew that Sony was going to release this console. 
There was no pre-release or store shelf space dedicated to the uh, the PlayStation. So what did these retailers do? Well, obviously people are going to buy the PlayStation. So they removed the Saturns from the shelf, put PlayStations in their place, and that's what sold. Yeah, it was definitely about marketing. That was an amazing step to make. Just imagine you just announced this beautiful system. And you think you have the market locked up. And then Sony, who had no idea even what they were going to announce there. They had no idea. They were completely like, um, what do we do? They announced the PlayStation and ripped $100 off the price. I mean, that was a huge marketing strategy. And it basically killed the Saturn. It was kind of weird. Sega, of course, stayed in the game a while longer. I mean, it didn't completely... Not much longer. Not much longer. It didn't completely die then. But you can point to E3 basically as their demise. By 1997, there were three players in the market. Nintendo and Sega were basically coming up to the end of their feud. And in comes Sony, which was a interesting setup. Um, you would think that they would be a smaller player because they just jumped into the market. But... I mean, as you can see today, they are a huge player in the market. As a matter of fact, it wasn't long before you um, you um, couldn't even see the Saturns. It was kind of crazy. Yeah, they were. I don't remember them ever being on store shelves, but it was like I said in the beginning. I don't remember really even playing one. I know my friends had one, but they weren't around for long. I mean, in that time, you either had an N sixty four or you had a PlayStation. So let's go back to the N64 for a little bit. And let you've mentioned some of the games you've you've played before. Let's move into talking about those a little bit more. Yeah, it's uh I mentioned GoldenEye earlier and why it was so popular, but what really still fascinates me is how they fit it on a 64 meg cartridge. Um and uh I mean, I didn't I don't think I ever owned an N64. Yeah, I don't recall if I really owned one. I mean, I do remember them, and they're like cube shape and things of that nature. But I really don't remember them. Oh, well, that sixty four wasn't cube shaped. The GameCube was. Oh, that's right. That's right. I'm trying to remember. The, I get confused <laughs> with half of these. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's funny though because I remember people playing them, but it was uh, we mentioned earlier the idea between Sega and Nintendo and Sega marketing to the older generation and. They certainly did that. Like it was not for me considered a console I would even consider. Although I know people who did and played it and it was fun, but um, the PlayStation on the other hand, uh, I have to be one of five people in the world who never owned one. Though it is funny because much later in my life, I found some quite amazing PlayStation games and I'm sad to say I missed out on them when they first came out. Yeah, there were so many games coming out in that era. I mean, for the N64 and for the PlayStation. I mean, more and more companies were seeing the money being made in video games. And third-party game developers were just springing up everywhere. Um, so many sports games were coming out. Um, there were games based on movies, based on comics. They were just springing up everywhere it seemed like every week five or six new games were coming out 
It was kind of crazy, which was a lot different with the early NES and the SNES and all of that, because you may get a game every few months, but games were just flying into the shelves. It, you could go broke buying all of them. It was kind of crazy. So it was really too fast to keep up with. I can't even remember 90% of the games that came out for the PlayStation. I had my little niche that I liked, but if you like sports, there were several of them. I mean, there was NFL, NBA, NHL, wrestling, golf. Golf, and, I loved golf. <laughs> and I could keep going on and on and on forever with just the sports games. And there were several iterations of them. There was... Every year, it seemed like a new one was coming out with updated players. If you like fighting games, Mortal Kombat came around, which was even better on the PlayStation than the original ones. Yeah, Street Fighter, they were even better now. If you like flying games, there was Top Gun. If you like game shows, there was one on Jeopardy, there was one on Wheel of Fortune, there was one on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. There were literally... Hundreds of games to choose from. There was also a lot of remakes due to the 64-bit capabilities, like Mario 64, StarCraft 64, Quake 64. There were a lot of games being remade. There were a lot of new games coming out, and it was almost impossible to keep up. Right. I mean, there was 8,000 games, and they all came out. and uh, Within a few years, too, if you think about it. Yeah, well, it was probably... the better part of a decade yeah. but still that's that's a lot of games that's that's 800 games a year yeah that's ridiculous i mean that's two games a day yeah it was kind of <laughs> crazy but everyone was seeing the money to be made in the video game market yeah the downturn didn't last very long but uh there are some games that i think people think of uh well there are certainly some exclusive playstation games like crash bandicoot which I never played um, until I played Uncharted, um, but I never got got into that. <laughs> um, there was Resident Evil, and again, that was released on many platforms, but I think people thought of it as a PlayStation game. Yeah, and they came out with several versions of that through the years. Yeah, and then there was Tomb Raider, which again, that was released on PC, Saturn, PlayStation, but pretty much everyone I know remembers it as a PlayStation game. And that started a franchise. I mean, yeah, was, and it was the bring back of the whole female protagonist again that we talked about earlier. And it also started the video game to movie crazes as well. I mean, everyone probably remembers the Tomb Raider movie with Angelina Jolie. I mean, well, maybe not everyone. There's a new one, but yeah. Yeah, there is a newer one, but the idea is it started as a video game and became a movie. And there were several that were like that. It started a huge craze, like Sonic recently. Um, there was a ton of video games that became movies. They also caused some issues because the movie often didn't truly follow the storyline of the game, and people really hated that. You really, you had people who were hardcore, loved the game, and would not watch the movie because the movie did not follow the storyline. Yeah. And it was kind of weird, but yeah, it started a whole craze. Yeah, it's funny. I always uh, try and take the movie for what it's worth, not anything more than that. But um, th there were uh, definitely sports games is what I was 
kind of fond of, whether it was golf or football or uh, there hasn't been a good baseball game for a while, but um, you were still, uh, no matter what platform you were on, you were always trying to play civilization, weren't you? Always. I still, I'm PC today. If a civilization <laughs> comes out, I buy it. Yeah, I pre-order it. I do whatever. And I'm usually against pre-orders, but you know what? If I see a civilization or a final fantasy coming out, I will pre-order that two years in advance. <laughs> You're nuts. <laughs> I mean, those series have not steered me wrong. I mean, Final Fantasy itself had several iterations through the PlayStation. They were fun games. And when we went into the 3D graphics, that made it even more fun. I mean, you could actually move your characters around and control the battle a little more than just clicking buttons and things of that nature. It became a lot more fun. And civilizations became a lot more fun because of the 3D nature. Even things like the Sim Cities became more fun because of the 3D nature. Notice I keep saying the 3D nature. That the ability to do 64-bit graphics in 3D really changed the landscape of the video game market. Yeah, I was definitely more of an RTS uh, person, and I played on PC, so I remember playing StarCraft and Age of Empires. Um, but, I mean, the the game, and I didn't play it on a PlayStation because I never had a PlayStation, but the, uh, the idea of driving games and Gran Turismo on the PlayStation, uh, when we get to the next generation consoles, we'll talk about that more, but... That that has been a passion of mine for years now. It's funny that you mentioned driving games. What driving game came out, well, kind of a driving game, came out around this time that everyone has just got like a cult following to <laughs> Grand now. Grand Theft Auto. Yes. And <laughs> that was the weirdest game ever when it came out. And trying to explain to my parents why I wanted to play that game when it's basically a game about stealing cars beating people up and taking their money, doing drugs, doing drugs. I mean, I think in some of them, you could even like pick up a hooker and bring them over and let's just stop there. <laughs> but it was an interesting and different style game that has broadened its horizon and got a huge cult following. Now, I think there's even an online version where you can play with other people. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, there certainly is. But before we go down a rabbit hole of all these games we remember, our time is about up today. So with that, I would like to say goodbye, and uh, we'll be picking it up with the fifth generation consoles next week. So for now, have a great rest of your day, and enjoy your week. Have a good day, everyone. Goodbye.